0: From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges.
1: This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The CDC has established a new center to better predict and react to disease outbreaks the Center for Forecasting and Outbreak Analytics will serve as a hub for innovation and research on disease modeling. Initial funding for the center came from the American Rescue Plan. The Transportation Security Administration, TSA, announced that it will extend its travel mask mandate through January 18th to minimize the spread of COVID-19 during the holiday travel season. Travelers will need to mask up on airplanes, trains, and buses, and in airports and train stations. A new report out from the Costs of War Projects says that the cost of care for veterans who served in Iraq and Afghanistan could top 2.5 trillion dollars by 2050, making the cost for U.S. taxpayers 1 trillion dollars higher than previous estimates. The Biden administration continues to pull troops out of Afghanistan in a large-scale withdrawal. The military will now conduct counterterrorism efforts outside of Afghanistan. Tom Jocelyn is a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. He's senior editor for the Long War Journal. Tom, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Can you give us kind of a high-level overview of the terror organizations that are currently on Afghan soil and who might go there now that the Taliban are in control?
2: Well, I think it's it's very important to keep in mind, as we've argued for many years now at the Long War Journal, the U.S. had really underestimated the degree of the alliance between the Taliban and al-Qaeda. So it's not really a matter of al-Qaeda making a comeback or a resurgence or a reconstitution in Afghanistan. These are sort of some of the buzzwords you can hear from U.K. and American officials. But in fact, they've been there the whole time. And they've been fighting to resurrect the taliban's islamic Emir of afghanistan so this is very much a victory for al-qaeda in addition to the taliban in fact we've documented how senior personnel all the way down uh, between the two are intertwined and so so often so uh, so often that's the case you can't even really tell them apart so this is very much a victory for al-qaeda and there are various al-qaeda affiliated groups in afghanistan today you know just this morning i wrote up a report about how Pakistani Taliban, which was responsible for the failed May 1st, 2010 car bombing in Times Square, New York, has just renewed its allegiance to the Afghan Taliban. Um, they've been fighting to resurrect the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan for years as well. So there are many different components or pieces to the Al Qaeda web. You also have an ISIS group uh, that still has a lingering presence in Afghanistan. This is going to be very difficult for the U.S. government to keep track of in the years to follow. Um, I think it's going to be a counterterrorism challenge.
1: Well, Tom, let me ask you first, if if the Taliban doesn't work to stop, uh, you know, these groups set on Amer- attacking Americans or American interests, let's just make that assumption that they won't try to stop them. How would that change how the U.S. approaches counterterrorism efforts in Afghanistan?
2: You know, I, I think that we, we should operate on that assumption. I think that the bottom line, from my perspective, is the U.S. had a hard time tracking what Al Qaeda and affiliated groups were doing in Afghanistan for all these years when it had a significant footprint in Afghanistan. Now with the withdrawal, um, President Biden trying to complete a withdrawal, I think it's going to be even more difficult without any boots on the ground, without any, you know, we're going to see the withdrawal of the embassy. You're going to see withdrawal of all the personnel. It's going to be all those places that basically provided hubs for intelligence and other sort of professionals. They're all going away. So I think it's going to be very difficult for the U.S. to keep tabs on what's happening there. I think the the bigger point from my perspective is that this is going to be a boon. There already is a boon for the global jihadist cause. The al-Qaeda groups that we track everywhere across Africa, across the Middle East and elsewhere are all signaling this today. They're all cheering this on and saying this is a victory for their cause and and the reason why they have to keep fighting. We've tracked as well that each one of them poses some degree of counterterrorism threat to the West as well. So this is going to be an ongoing challenge.
1: So what do you see, Tom, now that there's not there's not going to be an embassy, there's not going to be troops on the ground, how do you see reorganizing of intelligence and military operations?
2: Well, the U.S. is going to be heavily relying on uh, signals intelligence. They're going to be relying on um, any spies who are left behind who can avoid the Taliban and al-Qaeda's wrath. They're going to um, have to come up with some clever ways to keep track of this. You know, one of the things they can do and have been doing is monitoring travel. Of course, you know, um, people who are suspicious who are traveling to or from the region. That's a big way that uh, red flags can be sent up. So the U.S. certainly has a number of tools at its disposal to keep track of the terrorists, you know, operating in Afghanistan and flowing in and out of the country. The problem is that I think this will probably open up some new windows of opportunity for the terrorists, given that the U.S. is withdrawing, because there were already blind spots in our understanding of this big blind spots, I would argue for many years while we were there, I think those blind spots only increase in size. So I think this is gonna be an ongoing challenge. Um, I don't think there's any U.S. counterterrorism professional you can talk to who's just who's just uh, sort of um, sloughing us off at this point. I think everybody understands this is gonna be a problem going forward.
1: You said that this is gonna open up opportunities for the terrorists, what, what kind of opportunities?
2: Well, look, I mean, we've been tracking what Al Qaeda has been saying all along in, in, in Urdu, for example, the Urdu literature earlier this year, They're talking about how al-Qaeda was defeating um, in this al-Qaeda, this joint al-Qaeda-Taliban offensive, ISIS in eastern Afghanistan. And as they did that, the fighter was interviewed in this Urdu magazine for al-Qaeda, says, look, we're beating ISIS here, we're beating the Americans and NATO here, and we're going to topple the Afghan government. And after that happens, we're going to take the fight home to the Yankees. So, meaning us, the U.S. So, look, I think they're going to try something. They're gonna try to attack us in different ways. They already have a um, capacity to do that on a small scale. It's a big open question about whether or not they have the capacity to do something bigger. Um, It doesn't mean they'll be successful. Of course, there are a lot of tripwires they could still um, set off that would stop them. You know, I always like to say, you know, if you look back at the history of the 9-11 plot, for example, you know they got lucky in some ways. You know there were three or four major opportunities for that thing to be unravelled, and they just happened to get lucky, even at a time when the U.S. was relatively um, not not prepared to really counter the terrorist threat. It still took some luck involved. So look, this is not a, a guaranteed for, uh, foregone conclusion that they're going to be able. They're going to be successful. I do think, however, that the risk goes up significantly.
1: Tom, uh, briefly, in the in the time that we've got left, military operations, are we going to be depending on airstrikes and um, predator drones or armed drones? What what are we looking at from the Pentagon's perspective?
3: From the Pentagon's
2: perspective, they're going to be lo- launching airstrikes from, from afar, from, you know, basically air bases throughout the Gulf and from other assets. You know, one of the failures here was that there was no, as far as we know, there was no agreement put in place to base a drone um, sort of operation anywhere around Afghanistan as the withdrawal was occurring. And Pakistan has been very loudly saying they're not going to host the Americans. So it remains to be seen if they can find something that's nearer at hand.
1: Thank you very much. I'm sure uh, there's a lot more to say on this subject, but we'll, we'll continue to watch it on this program. Thank you very much for being on the program. Thank you. Coming next, the financial risks of climate change for agencies straight ahead on Government Matters how agencies can work to mitigate those challenges. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The White House executive order directs federal agencies to identify and mitigate the financial risks of climate change. The order requires creating a government-wide strategy to combat climate risks. Corrine Doherty is an audit partner with KPMG. She's the federal leader for environment, social and government initiatives. Corinne, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. What are the financial risks of climate change that the executive order is trying to address?
3: sure well the united states government has rejoined other governments around the world towards achieving a net zero economy and the u.s target of achieving net zero emissions by 2050 is only achievable with by the federal government leading the way especially considering the size of the federal government's operations and its economic footprint so therefore identifying climate related financial risks is essential for the federal government to take further action in its journey to achieve a net zero economy. Well, so in give me, thinking, sorry, Corinne. give
1: me an example yep. of what kind of financial risks are we talking about here?
3: Sure, sure, so in thinking of the financial risks around climate change, one framework that is widely used is the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures or TCFD. And so the TCFD discusses two types of climate risks physical risk and transition risk. So Mimi, physical risk is the actual damage to the government's physical assets and infrastructure as a result of climate-related weather events. So Mimi, we've already seen the physical risk to the government's assets as a result of climate change. For example, military bases have had significant damage as a result of weather-related events just over the last few years. And the sec- second type of risk is transition risk, and that's focused on what are the risks of the federal government transitioning to a net neutral economy? So for example, you know, the government would need to look at, well, what's the cost of the government to procure renewable energy or clean energy or replace existing assets with more energy efficient assets? And also the government will need to ask the questions, well, what are the changes in the government policies and procedures that need to happen in order to achieve a net zero economy? Climate risk is also framed around the long-term societal challenges, but there's also a number of different opportunities with transitioning to a net zero economy. And so those benefits include reducing the cost Um, in the long term as a result of resource efficiency. And those reduced costs could fund other federal programs or
1: mission critical needs. So do you think that each agency should develop their own climate change response or should this be government wide, a combination of both?
3: Yeah, no Mimi, that's a great question. And I think it's really a combination of both. Um, but first looking at, you know, a specific agency, the specific agencies need to address climate change. And that could be determined by identifying and prioritizing those key climate risks that impact the agency most. And I mean what's really unique about the federal government is that each agency is in a sense its own industry. And so what we're seeing in the private sector is that each industry has a unique set of climate risks based on their operations. So correlating that to the federal government, one agency's strategy to address climate change could be very different from another. Um, but there, you know, taking those individual risks at an agency level could then consolidate up into the overall government-wide
1: strategy to address climate change. So what do you think, what, what are you recommending for agencies to do in preparing for this? Because obviously this is going to be a lot of changes and, uh, frankly, a lot of work. Absolutely.
3: Well, it is a monumental task, but it is absolutely something that the government can do. Well, the first step, as I mentioned before, is is developing a climate risk strategy at both the government-wide level and then at each individual level. Really, the next step is where the government will need to identify, well, what are those fundamental changes in the operations in order to get to a net neutral economy so the government can identify well what are the issues what are the gaps in their processes in order to integrate those climate related uh, financial risks into the entity's operations and then the next step is really developing a roadmap for how to implement the strategy across each government agency and that takes into consideration establishing and executing the implementation of plans to make sure there's appropriate resource allocation. And then the next step is just really looking at measuring progress. So what are going to be the metrics and the tools and the data sources that are going to be used to measure progress against the strategy? And then the last step is really looking at the reporting and assurance around this information. So it's really important for the federal government to be transparent in their plans to achieve their decarbonization targets. And so qualifying the potential impacts in a standardized manner, excuse me, is really crucial for the federal agencies to manage their climate-related risks. So having quality disclosures on climate-related financial risks can definitely help the federal government reduce its fiscal exposure. And then taking that a step further, Mimi, is really looking at obtaining assurance over this type of reporting, which is critical to enhancing the public confidence and the accountability in the federal government in meeting its net zero target of 2050.
1: All right, well, Corinne, we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you so much for having me. Up next, hiring student interns at federal agencies. Straight ahead on Government Matters, turning entry-level jobs into key federal roles. All of our episodes are archived on our website, govmatters.tv, and on our YouTube channel. I'll be right back. The Office of Personnel Management will revise its hiring policy for entry-level workers and student interns. The initiative aims to provide flexibility in hiring qualified talent. Don Kettle is the Sid Richardson Professor at the LBJ School of Public Affairs. He's former dean of the School of Public Policy at the University of Maryland. Professor welcome.
0: It's so good to be with you.
1: OPM has put out a new what's called post-secondary student hiring authority. What does it do?
0: What it really does is it smooths the path for prospective students who are interested in federal government employment to not only get internships, but to find a fast track into federal positions on top of that. It really does a lot to try to deal with what's a long running and increasingly difficult problem of trying to get younger workers into the federal workforce. Uh, We've gone from making it almost impossible these days to be able to hire interns compared to what it was, say, back in, in 2010. Back then there were about 60,000 paid internships in the federal government each year. Now we're down to about 4,000. So it's little wonder that the federal government's having a hard time trying to recruit new talent.
1: Uh, tell me a little bit more about why are those entry-level positions and intern positions difficult to, to fill? It, is, it, is it because, you know, it's, it's too onerous, there's just too much paperwork um, well, that students yeah, need to do?
0: Yeah. There's a whole collection of things. In part, uh, the number of paid internships has gone down dramatically, and that has made it much harder to try to recruit students because free volunteer internships provide experience but don't really give students that much of an opportunity to move into federal positions. In part, it's because in the past, recruiting students has been difficult because it's been a lot of uncertainty and being able to manage the positions. The average time to hire new federal employees has been somewhere around 100 days and students with a lot of debt hanging over their heads don't have a lot of time to wait. And on top of that, the, the word among students I will tell you is that the federal government application process is so difficult, so complex, so uncertain that Students are just simply among themselves saying, you know what, I'm just going to go try to find an opportunity somewhere else. And that collection of problems, unfortunately, is robbing the federal government of the talent it so desperately needs.
1: So uh, OPM says the the new authority will provide, quote, additional flexibility. What is that additional flexibility? What's the change here? The,
0: the, The big change is that first, it creates the opportunity for agencies to create paid internships and providing more flexibility and bringing people in for those kind of positions, especially with the kind of education that students often have. And the second thing is it provides a way to allow agencies once interns come in to bring them into permanent federal employment and to be able to offer them positions that last for several years at least and and perhaps leading into permanent positions as well. So as a result, it provides on the one hand, the opportunity for lots of experience on the part of the students, and on the other hand, an opportunity for agencies to decide who it is that they wanna to try to make offers to ongoing and creates a smoother path into entry into federal employment. Both of them on both sides of the equation are tremendously important steps forward. It's just really hard to underestimate what a big deal this is, given the challenges that we face.
1: So do you think it's going to be effective? Is it, is it a matter of additional flexibility to attract young entry level employees given the competition there's the private sector there's no. the nonprofit sector
0: yeah. and it's going to go a long way toward trying to remove one of the barriers but I will tell you I I had a class a couple of years ago of 32 graduate students of very very smart kids and I asked them how many of you were interested in federal jobs and it turns out that 30 of them said no I don't think so and one was a kind of maybe So I asked why, and they said two things. First, they thought it was very, very difficult, if not impossible, to navigate the hiring process. And so the uncertainty tended to drive them away. And then the second thing is that they really thought that if they got in, they wouldn't have an opportunity to do meaningful work and to have an impact. Well, that's what I
1: wanted to ask you, Donna, because obviously the goal would be to retain these students beyond graduation and into higher levels of government. What's the best way to do that?
0: And the best way to do that, I think, is first to to lower the barriers and get people in the door. And secondly, to make sure that they have an opportunity once they come in, to have truly interesting and important work. These are very smart people who have a lot to try to give in a new kind of way, especially in building the kind of networks that government needs. And so it's gonna require a different approach on the part of supervisors to give them the kinds of opportunities that will come along with the, the things that will most attract the younger folks to be able to come in and stay now one of the things that's important to note too on top of that is that the, the private sector has this problem as well uh, younger people of generation z in particular can't imagine working anywhere for their entire careers They can't even imagine working any place for more than even five years in many cases and so the government has to go in with its eyes wide open trying to bring people in trying to attract them into federal service providing the kind of opportunities that they have, but also recognizing that uh, there, there may be a fair amount of churn because that's what's happening in the workforce in general. Uh, one of the things that the federal government focused solely on of trying to get people who are only those who commit themselves to a lifetime career in government, they may be missing the, the very smartest new incoming employees who have lots of opportunities on the outside. We uh, able to get the, the best people that they can, providing great opportunities, in the first few years, hoping that that will hook them, but knowing that if not, they've got people who are committed to the public service and transforming the ways in which agencies operate, uh, that provides the opportunity, I think, to be able to start to crack this problem. But the idea of solely trying to focus on getting people who are committed to a lifetime is probably not the best way to try to recruit the new generation of students.
1: Right, all right. Well, Don, thanks very much for being on the program. Interesting topic.
0: Absolutely, surely is good to talk with you.
1: Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv. And follow us on Twitter at govmatterstv. You can get the latest updates and a behind-the-scenes look at the show.